0: Well, Cole and I have been excited about this series, and we are still excited about this series. We're teaching an Andy Stanley series, written by Andy Stanley, and as accurately as possible we are, and this was so meaningful for Cole and myself that we knew we had to bring it to you to Stuttgart, and also to Malvern. And this week is week number six of this eight-part series. And the beginning of this series, kind of the driving question has been this. What would it look like to start all over with faith? What would that look like for us in this position now as teenagers and as adults? What would that look like for us? Because most of us had a, a beginning to our faith. And for most of us, that happened as we were children. Um, a priest, a pastor, or a parent came along and they said, hey, believe this. This is what you believe. And since we love our parents and trusted our parents, uh, that's what we did. We believed what they said to believe. And we're like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll believe that. Which means we had a foundation that was laid for faith. But for some of us, as we got older and then older and older, there was this gap that was beginning to develop between what we were told as a child and how we understood it as a child and what we were beginning to experience as we got older as a student, a teenager, and an adult. Now, some of us, we just kind of uh, squinted our eyes and, and, and we would just grit our teeth and make it through it. Even though there was that gap that was growing, things going to say, I'm just going to believe it anyway. And we did. We didn't look hard at those things that made us question our faith. Um, we just maintained our childhood faith but then every now and again, something would happen and we would see it and it would kind of rock our faith world. And we'd be like, I don't know, but we would just kind of ignore that, set it to the side, not focus on it too hard. And we would just kind of maintain our faith that we developed as a child. But others of us did not do that. Some of us, um, we actually saw that gap growing. And maybe for you, maybe you began to declare, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, what I'm experiencing in my teenage and adult life is not matching up with what I was taught as a child. So as a result, maybe for you, you just intentionally just walked away. You just walked away and you walked away from God and walked away from faith and what you understood of God because it didn't line up with the world that you were experiencing as a teenager or an adult. And besides, goodness, you know, if you're near college, you you know, you've got a lot to do to maintain healthy friendships or friends at all. And you've got, right, who has time to stop all that and to begin studying theology to understand where the gaps are when I was with what I believed as a child. So we've all responded differently to that gap that we have experienced as a teenager or an adult, but What is true for most of us, very few of us went back later and backfilled that faith as we became older. We didn't go back up and clear up those gaps and those questions that we had. That is why we're doing a series like this and answering the question, what would it look like to begin again right here, right now where you are in life? Now, quickly, we're coming in really fast for a landing over the next couple of weeks in this series. So, if you have missed any of the weeks of this series, they are critical, everyone. We would encourage you to go back and pick those up on Facebook, on YouTube, or on SoundCloud because we want you to have every part of this series from the weeks. Now, today, we're continuing the series, and I want to talk about something that all of us have in common, uh, and this is going to be kind of our launching point for our discussion today. And here's what we have in common. That is, we all have a propensity to do this, to bargain and try to make deals with God. We do. Come on. We've all done it. We have all done that. We've all said things like this. God, if you will fill in the blank, then I promise I will always do this, right? Or we've said, God, if you will Fill in the blank there. I promise I'll never do this again, right? We've all tried to make some kind of bargain with God, right? We've all done this. When you were a teenager driving home and you were late and you've probably been doing some things you shouldn't have done, and your parents might be able to tell when you get home because they might be able to smell you or smell something, they're like, something's not right. And and so on the way. Way home, you're like, oh God, and you're praying. (laughs) You're not making an exclamation. You're praying. Oh God, this is Harley remember me? <laughs> Hopefully. Hey, hey, if you could do me a favor, God, if you can make sure my parents are asleep when I get home, I promise you, I will never do that again, right? We have all in some way tried to bargain with God. You're not alone, and I'm not alone, because in every religion, people negotiate with God. In fact, people who don't even believe in God try to negotiate with God Just in case, right? Everybody has done it. Whether it's a serious thing, maybe an illness, something's really, really, really wrong, or maybe it's something silly, maybe something from high school. We have all at some point tried to negotiate with God. Tell you what, let's do this real quick. Be honest with me. Let's do this. Have you ever tried to make a deal with God? If you have, raise your hand. Mine's gonna be first. I have. Has anyone else? Let me take up a gander. Oh, goodness, hands. I see those hands. Yes, yes, I see those hands. We all have. Haven't we? We've done that in some way on some level. I have too. I've done that too. Now, here's another thing. So I I know based upon human nature, we've all tried to make a deal with God. Here's the second thing I know about us. We usually don't keep our end of the bargain. (laughs) Probably 99% of the time, right? We usually don't. You know, you, you tried to negotiate with God, and sometimes it has worked out in your favor once in a while, and when it does work out in our favor, most often, like 99% of the time, I would guess, we don't even follow through with our part, right? We don't, do we? Now, here's the thing about bargaining with God. When we bargain with God, there are two really big assumptions that we're making, Two. If you've ever, ever tried to bargain with God, we've all made these two assumptions. Here's assumption number one. It's that you assume that God knows you exist. Now, this is a big deal. This is huge. We assume that God knows we exist. We assume if you have ever negotiated with God, you have way more faith than you think you do. I mean, truthfully, you have plenty of faith in order to embrace any kind of religion out there because you, you've, if you've ever tried to bargain with God, you have exhibited faith. You have said through that negotiation that you believe God knows you exist, that you believe that God knows your name, that you think that God understands and knows your circumstances, and also you think that God gives a rip and cares about your life. That is a lot of faith, right? It's enough faith to believe that the God of the universe actually heard my voice and knew I was bargaining with him. If you've ever done that, you have extraordinary faith. Now that's one assumption. If we've ever bargained with God, there's a second assumption that we've all made. And here's the second assumption. We have assumed that we have something that God wants. We have something that God wants, right? That's what we're assuming. Because if we bargain with somebody, uh, here's what we're doing. We're saying, I know what I want from you. Now, all I have to do is figure out what you want from me and we can make a deal. We can make this work. That's how negotiation works, right? That's how how it works. So God, I mean, I know what I need from you, but listen, I'm not sure what you want from me. So let's see if we can figure it out. God, how about some uh, obedience? Does that sound good? I can give you some obedience, God. Maybe I can give you a little church attendance. If you'll do what I need you to do, what I want you to do, I'll give you some church attendance. Might even go to a small group, be a super duper Christian. I, I might, God, I'll give you some stuff. Hey, listen, I might spend some more time reading the word, right? Hey, listen, God, I hear you're really into money. That's what I'm told. So God, I'll start giving some money to something that you think is special, right? I'll do that. If you'll do this for me, I'll do that for you. Now, the assumption is that you have, and I have something that God wants, but here's the deal. And this is the thing that differentiates Christianity from every other religion out there. And if you are considering beginning again with faith, if you're considering that, this is the thing that you need to consider. Here it is. And this is great news. And this news stands in stark contrast with what you might have thought about God. And it stands in stark contrast of what you may have been taught about God. Even if you have grown up and you became a Christian in a church, Protestant or Catholic, this stands in contrast to your experience more than likely. And it is simply this, here it is. God doesn't negotiate. He doesn't want something from you. God wants something for you, and that is a huge difference. See, the reason we can't negotiate with God is because I don't have anything that God wants. I don't have anything that God needs. God is not lacking anything. And when you open the pages of the New Testament, the New Covenant, as we call it, as you open those pages and you read the story of Jesus in particular, and then you read what other people who came after Jesus wrote about Jesus, it becomes very, very clear. The Christian faith is not about you getting something from God, about God trying to get something from you. It's this, God wants something for you. He doesn't want something from you. He wants something for you. Now, the Christian faith uses a word to describe that. It encapsulates the whole big idea of what we're talking about today. And this whole line that is going to be drawn by this word, it demarcates the difference between Christianity and every other faith system out there. It is the fine line. It is a clear line. And here's the word. The word is grace. Now, chances are you have probably experienced Some kind of grace in your life on the human side of the experience. Every once in a while, you might even experience a a pure grace on the human side where someone is just like, hey, listen, I'm going to do this for you, not because you deserve it, uh, not because I want something from you. No, 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 no. I'm going to do this for you because I want to. And that idea, pure grace, It shows up every once in a while in our human experience, but it is always present as the epicenter of the new covenant. And it is always present as the epicenter of Christianity. It is the one thing that drives everything as it relates to following Jesus. Now, when I was a kid, I was given a definition of grace and it's kind of stuck with me to this day. And actually I wouldn't say kid, I would say as a teenager, and this was the definition I was given. Grace is unmerited favor. That was the definition I was given. And it really, really works. Think about this, unmerited favor. It means that I did nothing to deserve something that I got. I did nothing to deserve it. Uh, I, nothing at all. It was unconditional, unmerited. I did not deserve it. It's all about the person dispensing, giving the grace. And it's not about the person who is receiving the grace. Unmerited favor means this. I am getting something for nothing. And if there is any cost at all related to this grace, it is borne by the person that is dispensing the grace to me, that grace that I don't deserve. I don't pay for it. They pay for it. Now, here's something interesting about grace. When someone gives you grace, the one who receives the grace, they get all. They, they, they don't ever get the credit. Let me explain what I mean. When someone gives you grace, you don't walk away saying, all right, am I awesome or what? Woohoo, I'm pretty good. No, 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 all the credit goes to the person who gave it to you. You're like, they are the hero, not me. They are the hero every time, the person giving the grace. They always get the credit. Now, this dynamic is also central to Christianity. This dynamic also sets us apart from perhaps um, the way that you grew up thinking about God and how you approached God in the past, even if you were a Christian this might be kind of a new thought to you. The thing that sets us apart from every other pagan religion, this sets God apart from every other religion is this. And it even sets God apart from even some modern day religions. It's the word grace, unmerited, undeserved favor. God is saying, I am doing this because I want to. I'm not leveraging your character. I'm leveraging my character, God is saying. I'm not digging down deep and looking for something good in you and then giving you something. No, 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 no. I'm digging into my life looking for good in me, and I'm just going to give it to you. It's all because of who I am, God is saying, not because of who you are. God is saying, I am going to do something for you. Wow. Grace, in some ways, is like getting something that we do not deserve, but on the positive end. There's a word for that. It's called mercy. Mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve. I should be punished, and I don't get punished. That's mercy. But grace is even a step above mercy, really. And it is at the center of Christianity. This morning, we're going to be looking at a very particular passage of Scripture, and Paul is describing the importance of grace. So as you consider possibly beginning again with your faith, I want this to be clear to you, and I promise, if you have grown up in church, you have heard this before, all right? You have. Now, it's found in an ancient document uh, that we call Ephesians. Now, Ephesians is a group of people who lived in a town called Ephesus. Ephesus was an ancient port city, ancient port city, not a port anymore. The water is nowhere near anymore. It has receded. But then it was vibrant and it was an important city a long time ago. Now, We call it the book of Ephesians, but actually it's not a book at all. Actually, it was a letter that Paul wrote to the believers in Ephesus. It's called Ephesians, all right? But he didn't write it to a specific Christian. He wrote it knowing this letter was going to be circulated to all the churches, including, he didn't quite know the breadth of this, but even now that letter is still circulated today, and you probably have a copy at home. You have a copy, I know, on your phone, the letter of Ephesians. Paul wrote this in 65 AD. So that was just, let me give you context there though, About 30 years after Jesus walked the earth, died and rose again. About 30 years later, Paul writes this. And he's writing here, while people, eyewitnesses to Jesus's death and his resurrection are still living. Many, many of them are still alive at this time as Paul writes this. Again, not to a particular Christian. He's writing it to all Christ's followers. And in this letter, he gives us insight as to what it means to embrace this word called grace, the grace of God. We find it in this letter in chapter 2, and we're going to start with verse 1. Paul says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. And, And by dead, Paul meant that you were separated from God. He didn't mean you were physically dead. He's using an analogy as if he's saying, it's like you were dead to God and God was dead to you. And then for the next few verses, Paul goes on and he kind of describes how we were dead to God in our sin. He describes how we did things and the Ephesians speaking to them, you did things you shouldn't have done that violated your conscience and you did them anyway. He elaborates on this whole idea of what it means to be a sinner, to be a transgressor. And then a few verses later, Paul hits this transition point. So he sets it up. You were a sinner dead in your transgressions. And then he transitions. But unfortunately, in our English translations, the two words that are so important kind of get lost in the sentence. And let me tell you why that happens. In common Greek, which is what this letter was written in common Greek. When something was important in that writing, they had no way to highlight it. They didn't use underlines or anything like that back then. So they didn't have a, a way to kind of highlight it and say, hey, focus on this. They didn't have a way uh, to italicize it or bold it. They didn't have any of that. So here's what the writer would do. They would take that important thing and move it to the very front of The sentence. Now there is a translation of the Bible called the New American Standard Bible. Now, this is a very literal translation. We often encourage if someone wants to begin reading the Bible. We often recur encourage, say, hey, go read the New Living Translation. It's so easy to read in today's lingo and words. The New American's not quite that easy, but here's what it does. And this is why we're going to use it because it uses a very literal, when it said that here, it says this here, and they don't change up any of the order. They kind of keep it as as close as they can. So here we go. We're going to use this because I want you to see these two very, very, very important words. And it's in this next verse, because I want you to see what Paul is emphasizing in this whole concept That we're talking about today. It's at the front of the sentences. And so he says, We were all dead because of sin and our transgressions. We were dead. God was dead to us. We were dead to God. We were far away from God. And then Paul says this in verse four, But God, those two words. And here's why those two words are important because we have a very traditional way of praying, most of us a very traditional way of approaching God. Most of us all share this. It goes like this, God, I've really done some bad things. Yes, I am a transgressor. Yes, I am a sinner, I admit. I've done some bad things, God, but I, I promise you, God, I am going to do better. God, I haven't talked to you in a while. I know that's, that's wrong. I should have that. So, I haven't talked to you in a while, but I, I am going to start praying more, I promise you. We have a habit of coming to God and saying, but I. God, I've done this, but I will do this. God, I've done this, but I will do that. But I, but I, but I. And Paul is telling us, okay, okay, okay. It's a new day. That's not how it works. There is a new approach. God has done something new in our lifetime. Paul is saying this to the people that he's writing to when you realize that you have transgressed, that you have disobeyed God, that you have sinned, and when you realize that you are far from God, it is not but I saying, but I will do this, God. No, 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 no. It is but God. Don't forget that, he's saying. We want to say, God, I know I shouldn't have, but I promise. And Paul says no to that. No, 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 no. It's But God, but God, but God. But God being, here's where we're going, but God being rich in mercy. Now, if anyone understands mercy, remember what we said that was not getting something we do deserve. If anyone understood that, Paul understood mercy. He realized God should have killed Paul. But instead, God said, Hmm, okay, Paul. Oh, so you're going to destroy the church, are you? Well, let's see. I've got an idea. I'm going to show you how rich in mercy I truly am. In fact, I'm going to show the entire world how rich in mercy I am. Uh, if I could have everybody's attention, please. Attention, world. I'm going to choose this Christian killer, this Christian hunter, I'm going to choose him and I am going to choose him to plant more, start more churches than anyone in his generation. That's rich in mercy. And then Paul says this, and if I could drive one thing at home, very, very clear for you. If you are considering beginning again in faith, or if anyone has been a Christian and you kind of lagged off and you're on your way back in to following Jesus, um, or someone who might even be just thinking, do I want to come back? Do I want to come back? Listen, it would be this. I want this to be so clear. Look what Paul said, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Check this out, this specific phrase, because of his great love with which he loved us. The reason this is such an important verse is because this answers the question, God, why do you care? Why do you know I'm here? Why do you notice? Why am I on your radar? God, why would you even listen to my prayer? God, why would you give me a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance? Why God? Why when I don't deserve that? To which God would say it has nothing to do with you. The answer is not you. The answer is because of his great love with which he died, with which he loved us. Because of his great love with which he loved us. That's why. Because of his great love with which he loved me. Not just us. Me. And you. This is the essence of grace. Now Paul is building his case. And he does it so brilliantly because the Holy Spirit's leading him and guiding him in this. But it's amazing. This is the major place where we need to change the way we think as we consider beginning again. If you're considering Christianity, or if you've been following Jesus for some time, for years and years and years, this is central to the way we need to view life. And it may not work with the way You have been viewing life, and it may not work with what you learned about God as a child from your past. It certainly doesn't meet the way we feel about God, but here it is. Because of his great love with which he loved me, that is why you can't negotiate with God. It's why you never have to bargain with God. Because God doesn't want something from you. He wants something for you. So let's pull all of this verse together. But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, and then Paul goes on to say this next, made us, because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Okay, Paul, listen, listen, Paul, that is a long sentence. Paul, just, just give it to me straight. And so Paul summarizes it all with this next phrase. It is by grace you have been saved. There's that word, and that's what it does. It is by grace you have been saved. In other words, you were separated from God, but God, not you, but God, not because you said, I will trade, I will make a promise. No, 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 no. But God, who is rich in mercy, meaning he doesn't give you what you do deserve, because he's, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved you, that means you, he made you alive he made you alive. It is by grace then, Paul says, by grace that you have been saved. Or we can say it another way. Here's another way to word this. God chose to unseparate you because he wanted to. You were separated and God chose to unseparate you because he wanted to. Now, from that point in the passage, Paul goes on and he starts to uh change the subject a little bit. He throws in a whole lot of run-on sentences and information. And as he's writing or dictating this letter to someone who's writing it down for him, it's like it, it's almost like he begins to think, wow, you know, earlier I, I might have gone too fast for them in all of this. That was a whole lot in just a little space. I might have gone too fast. So in the very same chapter, Paul swings back around and he makes this point again in verse eight. And he says, for it is by grace, you have been saved. And then Paul adds something that we have not seen yet in this letter. He adds something that he left out the first time. And here are these two words, through faith. I love this. I love this. For it is by grace, you have been saved. How? How? Do you get that grace? And Paul says, through faith. Paul takes us all the way back to where we, when we talked about and discovered what Abraham did and what the nation of Israel did. We talked about that early in this series. Please go back and hear it. They did one thing. They trusted God. They had faith. They trusted that God was going to do what he said he would do, that he was who he said, and they trusted him. That's all they did. And God gave them a right standing with him. And Paul says, that's what it takes for us to that simple thing, that simple thing of faith, saying, I trust you, God, that you will do what you said you're going to do. I see it right here. I've heard it right here. My heart tells me, your Holy Spirit confirms it in my life. Yes, you will do what you said you will do. I have faith. I trust. And he tells us that is the way that we experience grace. That is the way, the only way that we step into grace. That is the only way that we harmonize our lives with grace. That is the way grace and this verse and this passage and this concept, that is the way that it becomes a reality in my and your individual life. It is through a single act of faith. And you can't have that faith for someone else. You can't do it for your children or your parents. You can't do it for your friend. You can't do it for a husband or a wife or a girlfriend or a boyfriend. You can only do that for yourself. And when you acknowledge that God loves you, this is the trust and faith that God loves you, that Christ died on the cross for your sin to make it possible for you to come out of death and into life. That is faith. And that allows you to fully embrace through faith alone, through faith alone, All of the grace that God is pouring into your life. That's how it becomes a reality. It's the only way it becomes a reality. And then Paul says this to help make it clear. And this is not from yourselves, it's a gift of God. It's not a trade, Paul is saying, it's not a bargain. It's not a, God, if you will, then I promise I will. I will not do this. I will do this and be better next. I promise you, God. No, 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 no. He said it's not a trait. It is a gift. And then just in case we still miss it. Hello, McFly. He says again, not by works, so that no one can boast, not by works, so that no one can boast, because this was a gift. This is a grace gift. It is a grace gift that you didn't deserve, and you can never earn it. It was a gift, and the world and the evil one was not expecting this kind of gift. Paul's saying I want you to understand because God is rich in mercy and because this is really ultimately all about him the one who is giving the grace and giving the mercy is the hero not us God didn't leverage your character or your good works or what you could do better or what you could stop doing he leveraged himself and his own character. And he wanted to do something for you and for me that we don't deserve. So God is saying, listen, don't bargain with me. Don't do it. Just ask, because God loves you. God loves you. Now, that's the theological part of today. Here's the practical part. Because, regardless of where you are on your faith journey, this is a really big deal. Because of what we were taught as children, and we may not have understood, and we still may be looking at it as a child. Because of the fact that we live in a world that says, if you'll do this for me, I'll do this for you. If you'll scratch my back, I'll scratch your back, right? That's the world we live in. So the question is this, as you explore the possibility of beginning again in your faith, here is the question. What standard will you use to determine where you stand with God? Okay, we got to determine this now. What standard are you going to use? In fact, even if you're already following Jesus, you still need to answer this question. What standard have you been using? What standard? First standard, are you using the standard of your behavior? Is that it, your behavior? Or the standard of God's grace, All right. Which of those two? There's only two. Either your standard to that you're using to see where you stand with God is either your behavior or it's God's grace. Now, most of us believe that it had something to do with what we did in terms of where we stood with God. But there's some problems with that. The problem with that, uh, this way of thinking, within our American, our Western culture, we have just enough Christianized thinking in the American culture, and we have just enough Bibleization of our thinking and our theology that every person here and listening online or who will listen in the future, we have an idea of what God might accept and what God might not accept. And your entire view, for the most part, has been shaped by biblical ideas and kind of Christian ideas, whether you're a Christian or not, that has been our influence in America. So if I were to say to you, hey, 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 do you think you can find a good standing with God based upon your behavior? It's very possible you would stand. and I would say, I think it's at least part of it. And I would say to you, "Well, then tell me some of the behaviors that you think that would be acceptable then to God. And you would give me a list of behaviors, many of which you find in the Bible. And I would ask, "Where did you get those ideas?" And you might say one of two things. You might either say, "Well, I, I made them up because I think that's how someone should behave." Or you would say, "Well, it's in the Bible. I'm pretty sure it's in the Bible." Now here's the deal. Please don't ever reach over to the Bible and try to use it as an example of where we can say we have a good standing with God based upon our behavior. Because if you do, I promise you this, you are in real trouble. Most people might reach for the Ten Commandments. We talked about those a few weeks ago. The Ten Commandments, remember this, they were given to a people who were already in a good standing with God because of that act of faith ended in that. Guess what? He gave them a right standing. Now listen, those weren't written to us. Those were written to them. They were already in a good standing with God. The 10 commandments were given to a people who were already redeemed from slavery, chosen by God. So don't reach for the 10 commandments to say, well, there's my standard. And certainly don't look into the new covenant and reach for the teachings of Jesus. Do not do that because his standards are so high that we will fail every single time. And you might think, well, Harley, I, you know, I've read some things in there and I've read this thing called the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said this and this and this and gave us a little list there. And I'll ask, really, have you really read it? And and the next question is, do you know anyone on this earth who actually lives up to that standard? Because Jesus, his intention in giving us that standard was to set that standard and explain it in his detail so high that no one possibly on the earth except him could achieve it. Everyone gets an F. And there's another thing most of the rest of the new covenant, which was written by this guy who wrote this letter we're reading today, most of the rest of the new covenant written by Paul, he tells us that it is grace alone, not by works. So our cultures whole idea that somehow we can kind of guess and and figure out what God is looking for in a lifestyle and somehow that will deliver us if we can meet that that might be biblically informed because it has some information from the bible in it from that more and we have formed a biblical moral system But the Bible never, ever, ever teaches that we get in good with God, a right standing with God by our other option. Maybe you just kind of made up the standard. But again, there's two problems with that. Even if we made up the standard on our own, here's what we think it should be, a life that should be if someone's going to be in good with God. Well, the first problem is you made it up. That's the first problem. The second problem is we're not even consistent. This is what it would take. So just think about this. Things to consider if you were looking at the possibility of beginning again. If you assume that somehow you know what it takes to get in good with God based upon your behavior, your belief system is biblically informed, but it is not biblically accurate. It is based on teachings that might have, you could have heard bits and pieces from Jesus, but it is not from the ministry of Jesus. It uses verbs and adjectives that come out of the new covenant. Yes, yes, but they were taken out of context from the new covenant because when we open the scriptures, we discover there ain't nobody good enough. Ain't nobody close to being good enough to be right with God. So if it is all about behavior, we're doomed. So here's my question. What standard will you use to determine where you stand with God? Are you going to use the standard of your behavior? Which you're really going to have to Make up your own standard. If that's where you're going to go, you're going to have to make your own standard because you'll never really know where you are with God. There is nowhere on the planet will you find a list that God has produced that says, this is how you have a right standing with me. And don't pick up the Bible. Don't do it. Because if you go to the Bible for that standard, you are doomed. You're doomed. You're doomed. I mean, come on. What kind of good God, if he's good, would say, hey, listen, guys, there is a certain lifestyle, a standard that if you will live this way and embrace this and live this way, then I will accept you. But listen, there is, it does exist, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. Good luck if you can figure it out, right? You're just left to guess. Just use common sense that you say. I can just use common sense and do what common sense is. Don't get me started on common sense. But as you go from culture to culture to culture, everyone has different common sense. So which standard are you going to use? There's all this conflict. You never know. You will never have peace if you use that standard. But the other option is this. God's grace. Is that the one you'll use? God's grace. But here's what most of us do. Most of us try to blend it together. And we say, listen, yes, it is God's grace, but I really think I have to do my part. Got to pay my taxes. I got to live right according to some kind of standard. I'm not sure. I don't, uh, probably shouldn't hurt the environment. God created it. Uh, I need to take care of my family. If If I do those things, I do my part, God does his part. God's going to fill in all the gaps for me, but I've got to really work hard and do my part. And then God will. But where'd you get that idea? Unfortunately, for most of us, we got that idea from church. But the guy who wrote half of the new covenant said this as a quick review. It is a gift of God, not by works. Now, that's what Paul believed, and that's what Paul believed that Peter and John, who followed Jesus, believed, and that's what Paul believed that Jesus came here to demonstrate and to die for. See, this is a hard choice. Are you going to live your life by trying to earn a right standing with God based upon your behavior, and it's got to be a standard that you've made up? Which is will be your standard will be a spinoff of something, you know, that was kind of in the Bible some way, or perhaps God's grace is the ticket. Don't miss this. Here's another way to ask the same question: What standard will you use to determine where you stand with God? What you do for you, or what God? Has done for you. Now, if you never consider Christianity, if you don't remember anything else that has been taught in this series or what we talked about today, I hope you're going to remember this. All religion in the world is D O, it's about do what you do. But the Christian faith is all about D O N E done. All religion is about, okay, God, let's negotiate. What do I have that you want so that I can get what I want from you? What are you interested in, God? Let's see if I can do it. Let's see if I can give it to you. That is the world of religion. And on your best day, you still don't know if you're in good with God. Because nowhere on the planet is there a list, is there a prescription for how good you have to be, how consistent you have to be. All you can do is guess. But the essence of Christianity is what God has already done for you. And here's the cool part of the Christian faith. All of the to-dos that we find in the Christian faith in the new covenant are a response to what God has to done. All the to-dos are a response to what God has done. Do you know why Christians forgive? It's not so that we can earn our place in heaven. No, 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 no. We forgive because we have been already forgiven. Do you know why we give? It is because God has already given. Do you know why we serve? It is because God has already through Jesus served us. Do you know why we're kind? Because God has been kind to us. Do you know why we submit to each other, surrender to one another, and put others first? It is because God put us first on the cross when he died. Regardless of what you have seen or heard, regardless of what kind of family you grew up in and what you were taught, Look in the new covenant and check to what God has already to done. In our faith are a response to what God has already to done. Never, ever, ever do we have to bargain with God. That's religion. But in the Christian faith, we have been called to live a certain life. We have but it's not in order to gain God's acceptance. It's because he's already given us that acceptance. And he says, now that you're part of the family, here's how we do as a family. It's not in order to get a right standing with him because you've already been given that because it is a gift, a G-I-F-T gift gift it is a gift and no amount of your work will work because it's not a trade it's a gift and we have been called to live this type of life called the christian life we've been called to live that because of the gift that we have already been given we don't have to live that life in order to get the gift if we did it would not be a gift it's a gift. So Christianity will never be about D O, do. It has always been about D O N E, done, what Jesus has already done for you and for me. And all of our love, all of our acts of service, all of our giving, all of our one anothering one another is a response to what God has already done in our own lives. Do you know what Christian marriage is? I'm still trying to figure this out. It's when two Christians who understand this, they get married and those two people treat each other the way God has treated them. That's what a Christian marriage is. I mean, they're trying to out-surrender one another, out-submit to one another, and it's awesome. And do you know why they do that? because it's all under the shadow of the cross where God said, I am so rich in mercy because of my great love with which I have loved you. And he's saying, I have leveraged my character and my goodness for your sake. I'm not asking you to leverage yours. It is grace, unmerited favor just because God wanted to. So let's sum it all up. Because of his great love with which he loved you, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is a gift of God. The old covenant pointed in this direction. Jesus died to make it a reality. And everybody after Jesus looked back and said, it is because of Christ's death on the cross that we know God loved us. And anything I do, anything I do is simply a response of gratitude for what he has done for me. I'm not doing that to earn his love. It's a response to his grace. It's almost too good to be true. But that's how much God loves you. And I can't wait to talk more about this next week. So I'm getting ready to give you a one-sentence prayer. And at the end of that prayer, we are dismissed today. So we hope to see you next week. Let's pray. Father, I will never, ever be right with you because of what I do. But only and always because of what you have done for me. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.